Lord, thank you. Bless our time. Make this fruitful. May it give you glory. Bring glory to you and may it advance the kingdom of God and cause us to be fruitful for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, um, I, uh, you, no surprise to you, I want to talk to you about missions, right? I've been a missionary for really 33 years because we spent three years in Alaska and we worked out in the remote areas of that state as well. But I want to approach missions from a little different perspective, like maybe from 30,000 feet instead of down on the, uh, you know, bad water, bad food, uh, monkey brains level, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but I do want to share a little bit more with you about where we've been, what we're doing. I think that's important for missionaries to do, for churches that support us. And by the way, thank you for that all these years. We couldn't be there without partners like you. And so I think it's important to let you know that. And it's also a good opportunity. We have a senior pastor here, and who knows, you know, he may have uh, uh, instruction, correction, uh, direction. And so we like to be accountable uh, to you. And, and I'll just do this, just bring you up to speed briefly. So when we went to Arctic Russia, we planted the first church in history that we know of in that part of Russia. And we... Uh, established a short-term Bible school, and out of that mission, there came some more churches that were planted up in that area from our missionaries that we were sending out. About six years after that, we were led by the Lord to go down, down the eastern coastline of Russia. If you can picture where Japan is, um, we were st still in Russia, but in that neighborhood of Japan, so that's called the Russian Far East. We were about maybe 25 miles from China, and we, again, we pastored there. We also had a, a help to establish a Bible school there. And then in 2004, the Lord called us to go to Singapore, where we were asked to become the directors of Rama Singapore. And so, you know, it's an interesting thing how God leads you in your life and how things are progressive. You, you, usually you're not going to see the whole picture when you start out. We walk by faith, and that's part of developing as believers, isn't it? And developing our trust in God and finding out that God is God and we are not, which is a major revelation in life. I think life is, could be measured that way. It's, it is a journey in which you discover over and over, deeper and deeper, that God is God and you are not, which causes you, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he said, in, in Asia we despaired even of life. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing now, but he said, uh, God allowed this so that our trust would not be in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And being human beings in this mortal body, uh, that is something we tend to back off from regularly, isn't it? We, we want to try to run things and trust ourselves. A new crisis comes up. I so much appreciate the prophetic word that Pastor had this morning. Because uh, situations come up, no matter how many times you've been delivered and God has shown himself faithful, the flesh rises up and says, but not this time. This time it's different. And so what a wonderful opportunity to, to realize how utterly dependent we are upon Jesus. We wouldn't want to be dependent on anyone else. And he's so pure and holy that the more dependent we are on him, the more his spirit is manifested in us and through us. So um, we, we got down to uh, Singapore. They asked us to become the directors of, of Rama Singapore. And I was about to say this, that, you know, when we started, and you've seen this in your own life, we just had a general direction. Uh, 
I don't have a legacy in ministry. I didn't have a dad and granddad and son that I could look to and say, well, third-generation missionary, I, I saw how they did it, that's what I can do. I, I didn't report this in the newsletter, but I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just went forward on my knees. We just prayed, God, help, show us. You know, It was like trying to plant a church or dig in granite up there in, in Arctic Russia. And at one point, I told Mary, I said, that's it, we're done, we're, we're leaving. We're getting the kids, we're taking off, we're getting out of here, I'm tired of this. And she said, well, all right, she said, but I'll, I'll be seeing you, the kids and I are going to stay here. <laughs> I'm not the smartest kid on the block, but I realized real quick, I think I'll stay too. You know? <laughs> so over time, though, for example, when we got to Singapore, we were the director of that school, at that time, um, this, the Rayma campuses were not expanding like they are now, and that was purposeful. Um, the intention was to ha- slow growth is better than fast growth many times. And, uh, but it came into my heart that this was a major transition in our ministry in about 2010. I went from teaching students to teaching teachers. And I didn't even know it was a transition until sometime after that. But it came into my heart to take our graduates, the ones who had a speaking gift, I call, that's what I like to call it, because not everybody is supposed to speak or wants to speak. Uh, there's all kinds of valuable contributions people make to the body of Christ, and they don't even know it. Yeah. A lot of times the grace of God is flowing through you and ministering through you. You don't even think that's a grace. That's not a grace. You think, well, that's just so easy for me. It's probably a grace. You know, the things that you think are, well, anybody could do that. Well, they can't. And so we never want to underestimate the grace of God that ministers through us. Lives have been changed by individuals. Billy Graham and who else? Some of these evangelists that were raised up by an individual. It's just amazing. So uh, at that time, there was no space for Ramus Singapore graduates to go out and teach. Now, I know this is strange for you to hear. I don't want to take a lot of time to explain this, but it's a different culture. It's a different place. It's a great place, a great, uh, wonderful culture. But uh, there was not, they couldn't just go down the street and start a church. So I wonder, well, why would I train them to teach? Now, I saw these people, they're, they're smart. They had an ability to communicate the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, to think about it logically, communicate it clearly. And it came in my heart, just train them as teachers. And I didn't know why. And I, I'd never seen that done. I didn't have a book to go by. I just did what we were taught at Rame. I just followed my spirit. I followed what God put in my heart. And I'll tell you, no one was more shocked than I was at how well it worked. I was astounded. And uh, somewhere about halfway through that program, uh, Rama USA opened the doors for campuses to be started around the world. Well, we were suddenly poised to do that because you... More than money or anything else, you need teachers to start campuses. Now, you, you need the money too, but you got to have teachers. So now we had a group of very capable instructors. You know, in Singapore, there's a, in Singapore, it's just a city state, it's a strategic hub. But the, the, the standard of living is high there, that's edu- highly educated, and a lot of committed believers from all different denominations, spirit filled, spirit filled Anglicans, Methodists. Uh, all kinds, Presbyterians. 
and they're, they're uh, developed. They've been Christians for a long time. So I had this stable of mature teachers. And so from there, we started another Rayma campus in Russia. We had uh, two in India, four in Malaysia. And if I'm doing my math right, that was eight, seven, uh, Rayma Singapore plus seven. So we, so we were over eight Rayma campuses at that point. So from Arctic Russia to South India, we had a part of starting or overseeing 10 Bible schools and to, you know, to one degree or another. So uh, we always knew our assignment as a, uh, the, the directors of those schools was temporary. In fact, everything we've done in ministry has always been start and turn it over. I don't think everybody should do that. I know everybody should not do that. Not everybody's called to that, but I know we were. And I always would tell the people, you know, if we go, the work will grow. If we stay, I'll be in the way. That's not true of everybody. But that was true in our case. That was the call of God on our lives. And so uh, we turned over our church, the churches in Russia. They're still going. And, and uh, uh, with Rema USA's approval, we turned over those campuses in Southeast Asia and, and India to other people. Um, so that was a major transition in our ministry because suddenly, instead of just teaching students, now I still teach Raymond students. In fact, in the next five months, I'm teaching um, five times at Raymond campuses in Asia. I'll be, in, I'll be either in person or by Zoom at Raymond Myanmar, that's Burma, uh, Raymond Thailand, um, Raymond Serake, which is on the island of Borneo, that's, that's Malaysia. And I'm missing some that I'm just not thinking. Who? Koimbatur, India. Uh, and so in the next just five months, I'm teaching, I think, six times in these Ramas. So I still teach at Rama. And I'm still helping to train teachers for Rama. And, you know, p- part of my methods were adopted by other people. Well, around 2013 now, uh, Rama India asked me to come. Now, uh, Reverend Thorat is the elder statesman of, of Rama in India, and, and uh, he's in his upper 80s now, and they started the very first Rama in, in India, and that was the only Rama in India at the time. Now, Re- India and China vie for biggest country in the world. India may be the biggest because they have a lot of unregistered births. So uh, they asked me to come train teachers at Rama India, and at that point, they weren't really using their own graduates. There's kind of a tendency to think, boy, we, we, you know, we, we uh, have to use Americans or, <laughs> you know, get people from Rema USA. And, but I knew I had a conviction as a missionary. You've got to train the people that are there. That God's got the equipment. He's got the, the people that are needed in that location. A- anyone, anywhere in the world who's a, a follower and lover of Jesus ha- has a calling. And so... Um, I did that. I went there to India, did that session, and I have to say, uh, with you know almost tears in my eyes, that was the most anointed thing I had experienced in ministry up to that point. I heard this saying. Someone said it like this. They said, uh, "I was a bell, a bell." All of my life, I never knew it until someone picked me up and rang me. I felt like I'd been rung. I felt like a bird 
in flight. It was like a dream where you're flying and, and, and you don't crash into the ground or you know one of those dreams where you're just soaring. It was a highlight in our ministry. It was notable. Um, now, I wasn't teaching on healing or faith or revival or anything, but the anointing was so strong in those sessions you could cut it with a knife. Students wept. I wept. It was, it was fascinating to me. And Pastor Thorat said, in 20 years, we've had many people come and visit, many ministry visits, but he said, this is the most significant one uh, in these 20 years. As a result of that, not solely, because there's a lot of good Rhema people, solid, committed Rhema people in India, but that was a major catalyst in the expansion of Rhema in India so that they went from one campus to, I think they have six now, and they're using their graduates who are phenomenal people. They just had all kinds of depth. Uh, on their bench over there in, in India. So gradually, you know, God was moving me more and more in that line. And then uh, with the help of my wife, the Lord led me to uh, invest in getting an, an, another degree that would give me the credentials, actually a couple degrees, that would give me credentials to be able to teach in uh, higher institutions anywhere. So... Uh, 60% of the world's population is in Asia. Um, nobody does what Rhema does that I've, I've ever seen anywhere in the world. Nobody does that as well as Rhema does it. But at any given time, there's maybe only 1,000 students enrolled in Rhema in Asia you know, per year, something like that. I, I heard a statistic just recently. 90% of the world's ministers have less than one hour of Bible school. So... Uh, now there's a lot of people in, in the Rhema Asia system that are capable, good quality teachers, and I'm still teaching there. But Mary and I have always had a heart to go across boundaries, both geographical and denominational. And I don't know why, but we have tremendous favor with people who think they don't like us. Uh, and, and, and they listen to us. I, I mean, it's... it's Peculiar. And, and they will receive from us. And I like them. I, I'm willing to receive from them. I, I don't know everything, as Brother Hagin used to say. I don't know everything. And, 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 and uh, I love the body of Christ. So uh, God has opened doors for me now to, I can work within the Rhema system and I can work outside the Rhema system. Tell you one more thing before we just jump in the word, and I'm mindful of the time. So, I, just shortly after I was here last, we were here three and a half years ago, and in somewhere in August of 2019, I was asked to teach at a seminary on the island of Borneo uh, in the jungle. Uh, that, that month. Borneo, you can look it up on a map if you can find Southeast Asia, Vietnam. You know, find that area and then go, go to the right and you'll bump into Borneo, the island of Borneo. It's, it's part of Malaysia, Dubai, and Indonesia. And I was in the Malaysia part in a place called Lawas. Um, the jungle is loud. I'm telling you, it's shocking how loud it is at night. The frogs, 
I don't know how anybody sleeps. And in the hut we're in, it's up on stilts. The ceiling is covered with lizards. Just covered with lizards. I, I am not a jungle missionary. <laughs> I'm a lawyer missionary. <laughs> you know, if I have my choice between a jungle hut and a five-star hotel, I'm not ashamed to say I prefer the five-star hotel. <laughs> lizards all over the ceiling. And uh, now we've got doors, we've got screens, but I don't know why they do this, but in the kitchen there's a huge open window. It's not a window, it's just an open thing, maybe six feet long and four feet high. Anyway, I'm in there thinking, now there's pythons there and crocodiles, man-eating crocodiles. <laughs> and um, I heard a story when I was there that there was a lady missionary. She was about to go into the hut. She was just about to step on the doormat when it slithered away. <laughs> Two weeks before I got there, a python got into the, the chicken coop he ate so much chicken, he couldn't get out. <laughs> so they called the young men students. They came and killed it and then grilled it. And I was not sorry to miss that barbecue. <laughs> so uh, I'm thinking, you know, this shows you my lightning fast mind. I'm in this hut and it is so loud. Those frogs, you, they, they, your mind, you think that their mouths are the size of, tu the size of tubas. And they're all trying to swallow you through the floor. Uh, and I'm very careful when I go, you know, to go to the, to go to the bathroom. You, the bathroom's outside your hut. You, you have to cross a porch to go into this concrete block. And uh, I come, I, I figure, I'm thinking, man, I'm glad this house is on stilts. So those pythons don't get up in here. And then... Suddenly I realized, wait, wait a minute, pythons, pythons climb trees. <laughs> What's keeping them from climbing these stilts and coming in through that open window? So when I, I would go out to use the bathroom, I'd come out of my bedroom door and I'm looking for a python. Then when I'd step out of the porch, I'm looking for two uh, beady red eyes in case there's a crocodile you know, waiting on the steps for me. Uh, I survived and I'm here. <laughs> I, I won't tell you about my trip about one week after that to Arctic Canada. When I got there, the, the pastor said, now, Joe, I've been meaning to tell you, polar bears are coming through the town. <laughs> and so he said, if you go for a walk, he said, be careful. And I just kept my missionary game face on. But I'm thinking, I wonder what that looks like. Be careful. You meet a polar bear. What does it look like? Be careful. You come around the corner. They could run as fast as a horse, and they will eat you. You know, they're one of the few bears that stalk. They'll stalk human beings. But going back to the python place, I was teaching in that, uh, with that group of students. Now, these fellas, their, their ancestors just two or three generations ago were headhunters, not of the corporate executive variety. Okay. And uh, these are precious men of God, just holy, dedicated, consecrated, smart, really intelligent people. 
And I was ministering uh, on, uh, I was talking to them about, as I recall, about preaching Christ or, or righteousness. I can't remember exactly. And I got on to Romans chapter 1 where Paul talks about the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And you, I'm sure you know this, that word righteousness and justified, like we sang about this morning, is, is, in, the, is in the original language. It's basically the same word. It's just the same root word. And I got talking with them about justification by grace through faith in Christ. And there was a buzz in that classroom. And they started talking among themselves. And one of them just stood up in the middle of my lecture and he said, what is that word? He said, we don't have that word in our language. Now that's stunning because uh, justification the church has held forever. It is the article on which the church stands or falls Everything is predicated on, based upon justification. Because without it, you're not a child of God. Without it, you have no basis to believe God. Without it, you have no blessings to claim. Without it, you have no standing to pray. Without it, you're not a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. It all, John Calvin said, it all hinges on justification. Martin Luther, it's, it's, it's the article on which the church stands or falls so here they're telling me in their language see I'm, I'm speaking in English and it's being translated in their language and they, they speak enough English that they could talk to me when they heard me say justification righteousness and then they heard the translation they interrupted me and they said what is that word we don't have that word in our language and then he said something that to me is a Macedonian call for me at this phase of our life and ministry. He said, you must teach us and we will teach our people. So that, that is our laser-like focus now is to teach them, especially not only, but, you know, we're, we're in the neighborhood, especially uh, pastors in Southeast Asia and India especially rural indigenous pastors, to teach them how to see Christ and preach Christ, to preach the gospel uh, of justification from all scripture. And because from that platform, that simple platform that all true believers agree on, you can preach faith because justification is the foundation for faith. What Jesus did on the cross, that's, that's, that's what faith is founded on. You can preach the name of Jesus, the power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, prayer, gifts of the Spirit, all of that. And so it's like a carte blanche into some of these seminaries that if I said I'm from Ramakin and I come teach, they say thank you very much, no. But if I come in, I, you know, they see my credentials, they see this doctorate and that sort of thing, and I'm teaching standard uh, seminary courses but from the perspective that we've been blessed to have. See, that way I, we can reach those people. We can reach them. So uh, that pretty much brings you up to speed on to, to what, what we're at, what we're doing. And uh, 
now, now that I'm wrapping up that degree, I'm just finishing my dissertation, uh, I'm ramping up my tra- travel, my travel time, and with the restrictions away. That's such a blessing that those have gone away. Missions from 30,000 feet. I want to uh, start with the beginning of the problem in the book of beginnings in Genesis 3. This is the first lie in the Bible when uh, the serpent says to the woman, says to Eve, now God, in, I won't go over there, but in chapter 2, God had told them you could eat from any of the trees, uh, but uh, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? And so the serpent says to her, uh, if you could go back that, that first verse you had up there, the, uh, he says, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And she said, uh, basically, I'll paraphrase, she said, you know, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree that was in the center of the garden. And she said, um, God said that you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And then the serpent says to her, you surely will not die. What a liar. He is a liar. You surely will not die. He says, uh, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Most of the Bible is about showing us God is God and we are not. That is one lens, one way to understand the redemptive story of the human race throughout Scripture. And it's so ingrained in humanity, in human beings, they want to be like God. There's somebody else who wanted to be like God. Remember? The devil said, I I will ascend up to the throne of the Most High and I will be like God. That's the lie he feeds people to where they think they can substitute their intellect for what God says. Or what they feel or what they believe or what they think is fair. And what our eyes are blinded to is just how fallen the human race was. And it's ironic, really ludicrous, that fallen human, human beings would judge God and say, God's, God's lying, God's not fair. So he says, your eyes will be open and you, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the devil told a half lie because you skip down to verse 7. Their eyes were opened. But what they saw was not that they were God, but that they weren't. Their their eyes were open to the shame of their sin. There was nothing wrong with their bodies. It wasn't the fact that they were naked. It's that they had shame. And and their covering in God had been lost. So we see Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What happened to the human race in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says in, in, in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, Notice what he says next. Here's the antidote. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. You'd be amazed how many times throughout the New Testament the topic of the sermon was 
I preach Christ, we preach Christ and him crucified. I want to know nothing other than him, Jesus Christ and him crucified. A lot could be said about that. He says, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting then in Acts 26 when God calls Saul. You remember Saul was was on his way to take Christians. Uh, he was on his way to Damascus, and he was on his way to take them uh, to prison and, and so on and persecute the church. And on his way, Jesus appears to him uh, in a bright light. He and those who are with him are knocked off their horses. And Jesus says to, to Saul, at that time he was called Saul, later his name became Paul, in 26.16, Jesus said, get up. And stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. Now he's going to send him right back to the people he's rescuing him from and to the Gentiles. He said to open their eyes. The big problem was the big lie. You will be like God. And, and what happened when they disobeyed the commandment of God, now, now watch this, watch how the law of God operates. The law of God, we sometimes view it so simply, we are justified by grace through faith, not by work. So we're not under the law for justification, but the law still represents the wisdom of God, doesn't it? And it represents the perfection of God. It, it, it represents the holiness of God. And really, if you look at the law through the right eyes, you see the perfection of Jesus. You'll see what life in God looks like. It looks like a perfect life. You could take all of the Ten Commandments and you run out the implications of each of those commandments. It covers thoroughly every fiber every thread of human existence so it's not just stealing things it can be stealing someone's reputation it's not just a bald-faced lie it's a slight exaggeration and you think well that's just a little white lie do you know the reason we think that way the reason we minimize sin we underestimate it is because we underestimate the glory of God the reason why, why we can think that way is because we've never been to the throne room of God and in the presence of eternal, uh, uh, infinite, an eternal, infinitely holy being. So our expectations are way, way, way down. And so we, sin doesn't have the weight that it truly does in God's eyes. And, and you know, here's the problem with that. Accordingly, our redemption does not carry the weight with us that it could. In other words, if someone pays a debt for you and you don't know how much the debt was, you're debt free, but you don't know how grateful to be. So what the commandment did, God had given them a commandment. What the commandment did is, it showed them, you're not God. I'm God. 
Now, in their case, yeah, it did display their shame, but God clothed them with, with animal skins. So blood had to be shed. I'm, I personally am convinced Adam and Eve are in heaven. Eve, you know, the, when, when, when the serpent did that, the Lord spoke to the serpent down in Genesis 3.15. He said, there will be enmity. That means division, strife. Enmity between you and the woman. He's talking about Eve. Between your seed and her seed. Her seed is Christ. And all those who belong to Christ. That's the seed of the woman. And, and then the Lord said, he said, the seed of the woman, he's speaking about the seed of the woman, he said, he will crush your head, but you will crush his heel. It's the most condensed, tight, terse summary of of redemption and salvation in the whole Bible because it totally foretells all salvation history from that moment all the way up to the coming of Christ. And it even foretells, it foretells the virgin birth and it foretells the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because the serpent did strike a lethal, fatal blow. It was a mortal wound and Jesus died. He truly died. But... Because he's resurrected, he crushed the head of the serpent. So, so Paul's coming back. He's on the way to the, the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says, I'm sending you to these people. He said, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is missions. We have a tendency to think of missions as over there. But one man's mission field is another man's backyard. And this missions really is just a way of perceiving the human condition. This state of humanity all over the world. Every, someone said every heart with Christ is a missionary, every heart without Christ is a mission field. And I like this one. You know, it's not crossing the sea that makes a missionary seeing the cross. So, so we, we have this situation where Paul, now who had been in darkness, is being sent to open their eyes, to give light to them so that they can see, so that the world can see you're not God. You know, th- think about the people that you know, maybe personally or p- publicly, and you know, well, they're lost. What's, what's the issue? Th- they think they're God. They, they think they can, you know, do as they please. Yeah. So, so Paul is commissioned then to preach Jesus Christ, not himself, but to preach Jesus Christ as Lord, to bring light to the Gentiles and to the Jews. When we, were, uh, when we lived in the Arctic, and I made my first trip there in actually 1991, and uh, I had a contact with uh, Eskimo reindeer herders in Nome, Alaska, who connected me with, somehow they had a connection with reindeer herders in Siberia over there, and they set it up for me to go over there, and I stayed over there for three or four days with, with one family. They invited people in, and... Uh, uh, I shared the gospel with them. 
for three or four days. I had been riveted to scriptures in the book of Acts where it talked about um, Paul uh, was proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. That, that was his message. It was simple. And um, he, he was proving that, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and that, that's all I did. That was my template. There were no fireworks. There was nothing, nothing especially spectacular. Uh, they had lots of questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? You know, I explained, uh, you know, and then they said, well, why did it take God so long to send him? You know, and this sort of thing. Finally, on the last day, uh, one of the women there, she was a dentist, she said to me these words, we're called to open blind eyes. She said, how wonderful that you came. She said, there you were in your own country with your own life, but God sent you to us. It's as though our eyes were blind, but now we see. I have a friend. He's an Australian missionary. Australian missionaries are awesome. They're like tanks. They just go anywhere, do anything. And they were among the first missionaries to bring the gospel to the island of Borneo back when those people were hunting heads. As some of them lost their lives, some were imprisoned by the Japanese during World War II. And... um, there were several moves of God on Borneo from the, around the 1920s and then around in the 60s or 70s when the charismatic renewal was happening in this part of the world. There were things happening over there. There were mighty moves of God. People talked about uh, being lost in the jungle and having the jungle illuminated by a supernatural light and finding their way out. They talked about trees and bushes that were on fire but weren't burning and all kinds of things. Well, my friend Bob, who's now 93... Uh, he was there. He's the one that told me about the lady missionary that almost stepped on the doormat and then the doormat. He was with me, and that's where we met. He was 89 at the time. And um, Bob is, is back in Australia, but still uh, preaching the gospel. And he got to know a couple of his neighbors. Uh, and uh, he offered, he said, could I just get together and read the Bible with you? Well, one of them said yes, the other declined. Uh, Bob said, okay. Well, uh, so he was meeting with this lady. She was a devout Buddhist from another country. Her family was Buddhist. Uh, That goes back centuries, you know. People can be very deeply um, uh, committed to their uh, historic uh, beliefs that way. But she agreed, and so Bob just read the Bible to her for six months. And uh, after six months, she believed, put her faith in Jesus as her redeemer. And she was water baptized. And he told me a little story that it just struck me. He said, she cries when she hears about Abraham and Isaac. She cries when she reads Psalm 23. I thought, who cries? Who cries when they read Psalm 23? I don't. She said when she read that, that Abraham was going to offer up Isaac and how the angel of the Lord cried out, said, Abraham, he said, you know, don't do it. He said, now I know that you fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And she said, God required of himself what he wouldn't require of Abraham. And she wept. 
I thought, what got into that little Buddhist woman? Because I'm around a lot of precious people of all kinds of religions where we are. They're sweet people, and they hold their beliefs deeply. What happened? I'll tell you, her eyes were opened just by the simple hearing of the Word of God. You know, Brother Hagin told the story, and Pastor Bill can tell this much better than I can, about a woman who wanted to do something, and all she could do is go visit the sick, and she'd just go, and she'd just read healing passages to them, probably primarily from the Gospels, but other scriptures. And as I recall, Pastor Bill, she, invariably, they got healed, and many of them were serious, serious conditions, and she was adding a ridiculous number of people to the church on a monthly basis. I, I want to say five families, but I don't want to exaggerate. It was a lot. I mean, if she, if she added one family per year, that's doing good. Just that the word of God is light. It brings light. So, uh, so it was the commandment, in a sense, that opened the eyes of, of Eve. The, the law is holy, righteous, and good. We're not, we're not justified by it. But it does give us instruction. And here's something that I think a lot of people miss about the law. None of us wants to feel condemnation. And we, I think we all embrace who we are in Christ, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's an important message to us. Uh, and so I have observed, both in myself and in others, there's a tendency to treat the law as a bad thing because it makes me feel bad. <laughs> Sometimes it does, you know. Um, but Paul said this. He said, I was alive once when the commandment came and I died. Well, what part of him died? It's really, you know, uh, the, the, the old Adam. He realized that he was a sinner in spite of his zeal, in spite of his, you know, self-righteousness, and he thought he was serving God. God showed him, you're not. You're not. You're not serving me. And so um, when Paul writes to the Romans, uh, he's telling them, I, I don't know if you've ever thought of the New Testament books this way, but but what those writers of the New Testament are doing is they're telling you what they preach. These, this, these are Paul's sermons. And in the book of Romans, it's written to Christians. It's written to those who are called to be saints, beloved of God. And these are the same people that later in chapter 8.1 he says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you know Paul's not condemning them. In fact, one of the things the law does is it, it teaches us, it corrects us, it informs us. We, are, we, are, we now live under the new covenant, spirit-led, spirit-directed. But, listen, I've seen people get saved, and they didn't know fornication and marijuana were bad things. Shouldn't do that. They didn't, didn't know that right away. The Ephesians, the Corinthians, there's a lot of stuff they brought with them that was not God. And Paul instructed them, basically from the law, uh, what is righteousness? What does righteousness look like? So the law, even for believers, it informs our conscience. We're not just out there, you know, in the ether guessing. We, we see what life in God looks like. But here's the thing. The law can define holy, but it cannot make you holy. Yeah. 
It can show you what holiness looks like, but if anything, it'll drive you to despair if you're trying to become holy through keeping the law. And that's why Paul said the law is a tutor. It is a, a guide, a pedagogue to lead you to faith in Christ. And so Paul in Romans is telling these people what the gospel is. And it's very interesting. We look at Romans 1, 16, 18, and I, I will be, I will, I'm fixing to, fixing to close. Uh, I, I don't want to cut it short and I don't want to go too long. Romans 1, 16, I'm going to paraphrase. The scriptures are up there. He says the gospel is the power of God because why? It reveals, in verse 17, it reveals the righteousness of God. So what gives the gospel its power is that it, it, it reveals righteousness. Now, that's not the righteousness that God is demanding of you. That is the righteousness which he is imputing to you freely by grace. It severs Satan's chains and hold on our lives. When God, he cuts those chains of sin by justifying us. But now right on the heels of that, this is, this is fascinating to me, he says for or because in verse 18, he says the, that, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So you see these dual revelations. They both have to be revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed and the unrighteousness of mankind is revealed at one and the same time. And now from verse 18 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, as a, as, a, as a former lawyer, I like to say, Paul is on a prosecutorial rant. He is out for a conviction, and he's, this is a favorite lawyer's expression, he's going for the jugular. <laughs> it's law talk, sorry. We'll come back to church. Uh, but that's what he's doing. And he goes, through, he goes through the heathen and all these ungodly practices, and then he gets on to the Jews, and he says, you've got the law, but you're, I'm really paraphrasing, you're just as bad, he says. Gentiles, bad. Jews, you've got the law, you're bad too. And then just to nail the lid of the coffin shut, from verses, from 3, Romans 3, uh, about 9, all the way to 20, he goes through this litany of things to, 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 for, for a reason. There's none righteous, not even one. None who seeks for God. All have turned aside. We've all become useless. <laughs> That's pretty blunt. Anybody ever said to you, you're useless? <laughs> Paul just said it to all of us. He says, there is none. Now, this is for, those, for, for us outside of Christ, without redemption. And I, I'm coming back to a, a high esteem for what Jesus did on the cross gives us a deep appreciation of the gift of righteousness. Because I have seen students shallow out on that so that their in Christ confession can become just platitudes and it's not registering deep in their spirit and I think it's partly because uh, they're so afraid of coming under the law that they don't want to 
see what the law shows at all. But listen, a thousand times a day, you'll see things about you that don't reflect Jesus. So what are you going to do with that? We know we're not to be condemned. We're not to be condemned. There's no condemnation. But what the law does is it shows you you're not God, but he is. As Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he, he, Jesus took the law. He said, I'm, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And what he did is he intensified the law. Now, he's the one that wrote it. He was there on Sinai. So he, he can give us the authoritative interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And what he does is he doesn't, he doesn't ease off the gas pedal. He goes full throttle and he intensifies and internalizes the law so that the law says don't murder, but he says if you've been angry at your brother, you're guilty. The law says don't commit adultery, but if you lust after a woman, you're guilty of that. He intensifies it. It's not just external actions. It's internal when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, good teacher. And Jesus takes his shot right there. He sees it. He says, why do, you, why do you call me good? Only one is good, God. He wasn't denying that he's God. He's making that young man think about what he just said. That young man is thinking in terms of, I'm good. You know, uh, uh, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. Da-da-da-da-da, he names several. And the young man, he, so, he says, oh, I've done that all my life. And, and now Jesus has just set it up perfectly to show this young man, you're not God. God is God, but he will justify you. And that young man, Jesus says to him, oh, he says, I've done all that. Jesus said, all right, just one more, one thing you lack. He's rich. He says, go sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. That young man went away sad. Jesus was going at his heart. He wasn't trying to drive him away. And he does that with us. He did that with Adam and Eve. He did that with Saul. He did that with the woman in Russia. He did that with Jane. And, and so, just to cap it all off, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And people try to soften that by saying something like, well, he just, he didn't mean perfect. He just meant be complete. What does that mean? Not, that sounds like perfect to me. If you're as complete as God is complete, that's perfect. Well, no, he meant just be mature. Oh, great. Well, that sounds like being perfect. If you're as mature as God is mature. No, he meant perfect. You see the standard, what, what, what God does with the law? To show human beings, you can't, but I can you can't, but I did. And that's why the power of the gospel is that it reveals this nuclear furnace of righteousness that is imputed by grace. And it's always done against the backdrop of the unrighteousness of the human race. The cross itself is a revelation at one and the same time of both the unrighteousness of people and the righteousness of our God. Friends, I can't speak for you, but I, I have to say that um, all the time, I'd like to say daily, but I can say gradually, steadily, I have an, an increasing understanding 
that that cross on Calvary was mine and that I fully deserved it. I'm embarrassed to tell you this a little. It's kind of funny. It's sad, but funny. I grew up thinking. I grew up in church. My earliest memory was lying on the pew looking up at the ceiling, so I had to be around two or three. I really thought I was a nice sinner. I really thought, I would never have said this to people, but I really thought Jesus didn't need to die for me as much as he needed to die for the real sinners out there. Because I was a nice sinner. I had robes. I had a black robe and I had a white robe. And I used incense and I lit candles. When I would come home from church, I even smelled holy because I had the incense. (laughs) And I have to tell you, seriously, I was shocked one day. And I'd like you to believe. No, I I won't lie. I wish I could say this happened 30 years ago, but I'm thinking this is in the last 10 years, and I may be being generous with that. Um, I remember reading Romans 3, 9 to 20, all the none, nobody, no way, useless, all that. I'm reading this, and all my life I'm thinking this is about these people, these terrible heathen, these disobedient Jews, you know, and it hit me like a freight train. Wait a minute. He's talking about me. (laughs) The altar boy. The realization of that was shocking and it was profound and liberating. Because when you realize that in yourself you're useless and helpless and hopeless, thank God for Jesus. And it makes you love him. It makes you appreciate this gift of righteousness. And that's why I said I could see in students' eyes. You'd say the word righteousness and their eyes would glaze over. Like, yeah, I know that already. I already know that. Well, you know what Paul said, right? If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing like he ought to know it. And that's true of me. Every day I need fresh manna. Every day. Day by day. And I'll close with this thought. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4. I'm really closing. I'm not fixing to close. I'm closing. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He said, We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You know, if there's anything I... I want, I mean, I long for is the sincerity and purity, simplicity and blameless of Jesus to come out. That you're not talking to make an impression. You're not uh, trying to uh, impress people. But wouldn't it be wonderful just to have the life of Jesus flowing out? To me, that's ultimate Christianity. That's where God gets all the glory. So he says, always bearing in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly, this is why I said a thousand times a day, things will pop up, you'll see things. That's not the time for condemnation. The law can correct us, but it's not allowed to condemn us. 
But it is an opportunity to embrace this scripture when we see things in our lives. And I see it all the time. That was not Jesus. That, that's not the love of Jesus. He's not that way. And, 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 you know, I'll just speak for myself. I see that frequently. The difference now, frequently, I see it all the time. And the difference now, though, is I'm not condemned. Because I'm burying in my body the dying of Jesus. I carry it around in my heart. He died for me. He died for me. He died for that. I I have no trouble confessing my sins and my mistakes because the blood is right there. I'm not going to linger in depression or condemnation. The blood is there. The blood has been applied. And burying in my body the dying of Jesus, I'm carrying around like, like hot coals. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in my mortal body. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Friends, when we see the ugly, and and, you know, the law will show you that was an exaggeration. Or you said um, you love them, but you're resentful. You said, bless you, bless you, but you really had hatred in your heart. I could not be that honest with myself until I began to see this. I would try to smother it and say, well, that's just my flesh. That's just my flesh. Yeah, the point is, it's your flesh. It is is your flesh. (laughs) You're a new creature. And the, the ultimate reality is who we are in Jesus. But... We still deal with the flesh, and it is God's will that we reckon that man dead day by day. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life of Jesus made manifest in our mortal body. May we bring you glory and honor. May the eyes of those who are lost be opened to see so that they can see that they are not God, but there is one. He is God who sought them and bought them and would save them. Father, we ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. We give you praise and glory and honor. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor.